which was you cannot change education without touching the financial system, the resources, the physical space, the investment, the, the, you know, the salaries that you pay to teachers, how to invest in technology, what is the return? I think the idea of plagiarism, the idea of cheating is not the right discussion. I think what we need to do is change the way we assess knowledge, change from, you know, we used to teach how to do things, and that was part of the agricultural era. We used to teach, you know, what to do, part of the industrial era, you know, what formula, what you needed to memorize. And now we need to teach why. We need to focus much more on the purpose. We need to focus much more on the know who. Who is doing things different? Who's inventing? Who's accelerating? And, and, and then in the know-how is how can you become more human and then use technology to extend it? By basically saying you need to learn to understand the, this con context, you need to learn how to learn for the rest of your life, and then you need to act on, on that learning. Those would be the right ideas to design or redesign the transformation in education. We need to think about not a university, but a multiversity. A multiversity is a place where you have multiple certificates throughout multiple stages of your life, multiple segments, multiple generations, and multiple journeys. All of that is already existing, but it's, it's kind of a, it's singled out as a university. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi, and today we are discussing the future of education, especially in LATAM, with Fernando Valenzuela. He's a thought leader and a consultant who specializes in educational technology. He's also the co-founder of the Global Impact EdTech Alliance, a mentoring organization, and EdLATAM Alliance, a network of Latin American educational innovators. He was recently named a Global Visionary of the Year in 2022 by EdTech Digest. Hi, Fernando. How are you? It's so great to have you with us today. He Hello, Maria. Very, very happy to be with, with your audience. So very excited. You know, uh, education is always a very, very dear topic of mine. Uh, it doesn't matter uh, what we are talking about here in Fisher Hacker, it always ends up going back to the topic of education somehow, you know. But, you know, let's begin by the beginning. Let's explore your venture into the educational sector, uh, your encounters while residing in so many countries that you did, leading to the co-founding of the Global Impact EdTech Alliance. Like, uh, what motivated your entry into this field and were there any particular moments or experiences that influenced your professional perspective? Yeah, so it's, a, it's been a, a long journey. So I started in the, in the technology sector and by doing that, I was already connected with education because I was kind of in the leading edge of technology kind of in the late 80s working for companies like Hewlett-Packard and... EDS, uh, some of the companies that were kind of ahead of everything that was happening in, in technology. And that's how I initially got connected by teaching and by being part of the faculty in many universities. Uh, I also got the chance to live in many different countries. So I lived in Brazil, I lived in Colombia, in the US, 
and in Mexico. So I had this regional perspective, always thinking about the challenges of Latin America and how Latin America was particularly behind in education. So around 2009, uh, one of my ex-bosses at, at Hewlett-Packard told me, you know, the next digital transformation has to happen in education. And I was so convinced about that that I started monitoring the industry of, of education, the technology in education. In 2009, 2010, there was not a concept of edtech, even though education in technology has been sort of there forever, but there was not an industry of entrepreneurs in education. It was really very concentrated. You could see that only five companies were above $1 billion in the world. And all of these companies, or most of these companies, were the, the textbook publishers. And there was only one technology company at, at that time. And then from those big companies down, there was a big, big space. And that's where I got the opportunity. So I, I joined as, as president for Latin America for the very large publishers, McGraw-Hill, Sengage Learning, and that's how I said, you know, the digital transformation has to come from outside, has to come from entrepreneurs. And so much. So I started kind of promoting, you know, parents that were not satisfied with education, students, teachers, investors, and saying we need to build this idea of entrepreneurs. And, you know, to make this very long story shorter, so I ended up uh, working in about six acquisitions for Sengage, two more for McGraw-Hill, and, and then I realized that the industry was beginning to happen. You know, I find, I find your journey fascinating because um, you were able to, to experience this amazing evolution in an industry that it was we know that many industries are being impacted by, by you know, new technologies, but when you talk about education and all the cultural differences and all the differences in new generation and how people consume content and how people are learning today against how we did uh, a couple of decades ago. And uh, regardless of the topic at hand, we always find ourselves delving into this, the meaning of education and the necessity for this revamped system to address all the new forms of content consumption, all the learning expectations of the newer generations. So, you know, given this amazing experience of yours, um, have you observed any substantial changes or do you feel we're still clinging on traditional methods? And how do we propel the system forward in the face of those shifts? I find it interesting that you just mentioned how you believe that changes have to come from the outside and from those edupreneurs, right? But is this enough to change a whole system? Well, yes, I think one of the key ideas here is that you know, when I started looking at education, there were significant changes happening in some of the pedagogical discussions. So, uh, one, of, one of the things that I realized was that, you know, the role of the teacher, the role of the student, new pedagogies for more active learning were beginning to happen. And in that sense, what I found is that the people that 
were involved in these changes, in these new pedagogies, were not involved in the technologies. It was kind of an, a, a broken bridge. People that understood technology did not know how to use technology for these new kind of learning scenarios that people that were trying to change the pedagogies were very distant from technology. And that was my first realization, to begin bu building this bridge, because you're in, in the end, you're using technology to enrich a human, a very human experience, um, sort of like mentoring, like not only content consumption, but also how you experience the relationship with others, what is your role in your own learning. So that was the initial connection, the initial bridge. But then after a couple of years, I realized that that was not even enough because in order for you to take advantage of the new pedagogies and the new technologies to expand those, you needed to change the capital resource allocation, budgeting, and the whole financing of, of, of education. And that was a, a big a big realization as well, because then I needed to build another bridge, which was you cannot change education without touching the financial system, the resources, the physical space, the investment, the, the you know the salaries that you pay to teachers, how to invest in technology, what is the return? I ended up building a, a methodology of, of returns because it's not only return on education versus return on investment, you needed additional returns, the return on time, return on information, return on trust, return on impact. And the final bridge, then I, I had these three bridges. I was beginning to connect the community of new pedagogies with the community of new technologies and the community of financing, budget, resource allocation, architects and physical space. And then I realized there was an, another missing bridge. And this was the impact bridge because now we can use these three previous combination of pedagogy technology and resources to impact millions of people so this idea that you only have a school that is of this size because you only have this amount of seats and classrooms is totally outdated and then then i realized that now education can finally close gaps for millions and that was kind of the last the last bridge so Pedagogy, technology, capital, and impact, they need to merge in order to do this transformation. I, I absolutely love this rationale. And, and of course, it makes a lot of sense, but I can see also the size of the challenge, right? Of doing something like that. And I can see that thinking about the, the private sector world. So taking this even to the government sphere, to the public sphere, it's almost sound like a mission impossible. So uh, w when you got into this whole journey, uh, did you begin it by, by, you know, trying this effort on a private sphere or were, were you also able to somehow involve the public one? So for, for Latin America, I see that this is this is very, very painful. When you when you look at the public sector in the region, I started initially by looking at countries, the, the initial incubators, accelerators, the initial edupreneurs that I found, I found them in places like Israel, like the UK, like Japan, Singapore, 
and the and the Nordics. Those were the countries that in 2009, 10, 11, they were doing something. And the common thing about them was that there was a big connection between the public and the private sector. Even in, in some of these countries, what happens is the public sector sets up the agenda of transformation, the goals, what they want to accomplish. And then you have the traditional universities and the the entrepreneurs kind of working together to solve these challenges. So there was a big connection between private and public to do this. When you get to Latin America, it's really, really painful. It's it's only in the private sector that you see a little bit of, of that. When you when you speak about the public sector, they either have too much of a close boundary in terms of how they can shift funding from one place to the next, or they have political commitments, or they have so much, you know, reduced time because you you know a new governor or a new municipality comes in and they only have four years or five years, and then the new one comes in and breaks everything. So there is no continuity. So it's been very very painful to see this in the region. I think it's a it's a private public collaboration. I think it requires much more than the big players because you you can see now governments trying to do something in, in the digital transformation sphere, but they o- only look at companies that are able to sustain and have the resilience to deal with governments that would probably, you know, eat up a lot of resources and don't don't pay in time or they want things for free for a number of, of years and, and pilots, large pilots without being paid and so on. So I think it, this is one of the key challenges in Latin America, doing the right public and private collaboration. And I will, I would even get a little deeper into that, uh, Fernando. Uh, when we say private versus public and this collaboration, uh, I see that not only the educational institutes and initiatives and schools and universities, but also uh, companies and associations and organizations, especially because it should be any company's very first interest to, to be able to qualify people, to educate people so they can actually be competitive in the market, which is a big pain here as well, right? Do you do you, do you have any good cases about that? You know, a real collaboration between all the, the spheres or is like a work in progress? Yeah, I would I would say they, they there are a few a few selections. I think countries like Uruguay with, with Plan Seibal, which created this entity with enough autonomy and enough, uh, you know, kind of freedom to to move around the digital technology. There's a little bit in, in Costa Rica. So some of these small countries in, in the region are able to do that. I think this idea of creating a somewhat in the middle type of organization like, like Plan Seibal has proven to be very successful in how they integrate a long-term vision Uh, digital technology and so on. One of the things that I realized uh, early on is the amount of money that God gets into education from foundations, NGOs, corporate social responsibility, uh, volunteers. There's a lot of causes around education. There's a lot of money in the nonprofit sector that goes to education. The problem is that it's it's invested and it's dedicated in places where they cannot maximize impact. So you have, you know, a number of companies that would have an education effort and they would go and, you know, paint a school or help, you know, 
give some of these classes. And there, you know, when when you look at the amount of money, both both publicly and and in in the corporate level, in the corporate social responsibility level, you you realize that it's more a problem of how it's allocated and how it creates impact than looking for more money. I think everybody is conscious about education, but the way they apply this is either through initiatives that would not maximize impact, would have a very reduced, you know, sustainability in terms of time. So it ends up, you know, losing all of that impetus. So I think I think we have a great opportunity just to to rethink that, to be willing to enter this technology. I, I did one one project in, in Mexico with a few friends, it was no more than than six or seven or, of us, that we went to find the most vulnerable school that we could. And we found it in, in, in a municipality in Oaxaca, which is one of the poorest states. It's a, it's a community that is totally lost, uh, you know, very far away from, from any city. They don't even speak Spanish. They have very little access. And what we decided to do is try to test how they would respond top-line technology infrastructure training. So we created, we put the connectivity antenna from, from Starlink. We brought one of the best uh, content solutions. We provided training. We work with the community and we demonstrated that in a small community, only six people could make it happen for 250 communities uh, and families in, in the most vulnerable areas. So, so in many senses, this is not a limitation of connectivity. This is not a limitation of budgeting. This is just resource allocation and collaboration yeah. between private and public. That would be kind of the message, I think. Yeah. And it's, you know, in, in a way, I even find it so, somehow optimistic, you know, just to know that the resources are there. We just need to be smarter regarding using it. For me, somehow it's 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 better, right? Than 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 you know not having them at all. Uh, okay, so I have so many topics to discuss with you, Fernando. So I'd like to discuss specifically about um, how do you see uh, the industry and the educational industries specifically responding to the artificial intelligence use and the challenges about you know teaching what really matters like being able to question the sources, uh, media literacy, uh, databases, the use of the right databases, the logic behind it, ethics, uh, bias, you know, against also the plagiarism, plagiarism battle, right? So how do you perceive uh, the institutions addressing this? Yeah, I, I think first... It, it came as a big, big shock to the system. So let's let's remember that when when artificial intelligence in the name of ChatGPT got to every single home in, in the world pretty pretty rapidly, people were just coming back from the the COVID pandemia and just trying to realize that what they did in in moving to digital education was was not exactly digital transformation. It was just a digital emergency when they tried to replicate what was happening. So within that shock comes another shock, which is now artificial intelligence is in the hands of everybody. And and it has many different dimensions. So this, you know, in order to, to respond to, to you, Maria, I think we need to look at 
many different dimensions, one of which has to do with some of the lessons of, of what happened during the pandemic, which was that education realized how much importance had the emotional status and the emotional well-being of only not only students but also teachers. So including the emotional impact in education was not something that was done. The second aspect also in, in that dimension has to do with the fact that you don't only think about education anymore as a stage in your life. You know, you used to learn and then and then work, right? Now it has to be, you know, all connected. So when 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 artificial intelligence begin began to, to hit, the first thing that happened were, and I'm sure you you saw all of these news, you know, saying that the, the end of humanity was coming, that all of this negativity saying, what are yeah. we going to do? The, you know, New York City is banning because of the cheating and, and you know, the, the, the chatbots and what are we going to do? Plagiarism and students are cheating and, and everything had to do with try to, trying to block as, as, you know, everybody remembers that the same thing happened when calculators began to to hit in, yes. in the market. You, know, you see these math teachers protesting against uh, calculators. But in, in, in reality, I think that what happens now is that artificial intelligence and the whole digital scenario is, is here to stay. And it's not only artificial intelligence, it's going to be a collision of technology. So when you put artificial intelligence with augmented reality, with gaming, with data analytics, what happens and the way artificial intelligence beats the education system is because it doesn't have these fake compartments. It doesn't have this idea that the faculty of, of science does not speak with the faculty of art or the faculty of humanities. And, you know, you see that everything in education had its own compartment. So when you put artificial intelligence and connects data all over the place, you can see that industries have a lot of commonality. You can see that the humanities, the arts, uh, you know, the oil industry and the fruit and, and, and food industry and the electronic industry be begin to have kind of commonalities because data now has no boundaries, has not these, these fake uh, faculties, you know, the buildings are totally separate. And I think that was that was one of the, the initial challenges. I think the idea of, of plagiarism, the idea of cheating is not the right discussion. I think what we need to do is change the way we assess knowledge, change from, you know, we used to teach how to do things, and that was part of the agricultural era. We used to teach, you know, what to do, part of the industrial era, no? what formula, what you needed to memorize. And now we need to teach why. We need to focus much more on the purpose. We need to focus much more on the know who. Who is doing things different? Who is inventing? Who is accelerating? And, and, and then in the know-how is how can you become more human and then use technology to extend? And, and let me just close with the, with the biases and, and, and the the concerns everybody says you know artificial intelligence can be mistaken there there is a lot of you know a lot of data that is not true it, it can hallucinate and all of that but I, I always say that 
it also reflects the data that we created. It reflects data from the past. Yep. So it it means that our teachers also hallucinate, also have biases, also have, you know, significant uh, behaviors that would probably favor uh, men over women, would probably favor some, some other, uh, you know, biases that you only see them consolidated in data. So when you close the classroom and it happens in one teacher, they could also make mistakes and all of that can happen. So I think we need to be more optimistic. We also need to be aware of, of the concerns and the ethical. We need to regulate in the sense that you would create uh, like a legal boundary between, if I always say like, if you have two lawyers and, and one lawyer is totally aware of, of what is happening around the world and the other lawyer has only worked in, in one area of law, then the lawyer that is more connected would always win. That's what happens with artificial intelligence. It's like you, you would be the, the lawyer that only knows a little bit and you're against the lawyer that, that owns a lot. But you know, uh, Fernando, I think that the challenge here is that uh, how not to make all those, not to turn all those bias that are already here and they have been forever and actually in the past were much worse and much more cruel than they are today, right? Uh, but into something exponential because if we decide to stop thinking about it and just make something that we, we, we develop in a way that is not going to improve or make it better, how to avoid going into a way that all the, 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 the negative sides are going to be exponential, which, which uh, makes me uh, want to, to, to go to my next question, which is, uh, as you're, you were mentioning before, traditionally, soft skills like you know, critical thinking, adaptability, they weren't really encouraged in schools, right? Uh, and neither we had spaces uh, which would allow us to make errors and try again. Uh, we had this uh, system that we had to memorize, to accept whatever the, the teacher was saying and whatever was written on the books. And so to that, like, are, are we making the necessary changes? I, I do know a couple of initiatives, but very few ones, and we did cover those uh, in the media literacy roundtable that we did a couple of months ago. Uh, but, you know, how do you see those changes taking place? Yeah, so, so as, as you mentioned, I think in every single uh, education system, in every country in Latin America, you see these sweet spots. You see a few examples that are doing this correctly. The problem is of that of scalability and, and maximizing impact. I think one of the keys, when you mention the... the, the you know, the exponentiality of, of this transformation. I think what we need to do in education, and this is to my friend Gary Bowles from, from Singularity, you need to think about the mindset, the skill set, and the tool set that you need. Those three dimensions, I think, would be my initial approach. So what is the right mindset of all of these leaders in education? What are the skills that they need to, to develop? Because we used to think, that if you work in education, you know, think about the head of a school, the head of a university, they only look within themselves, right? They think that they know it all because they have the teachers, because education hasn't changed. So they need to they need to transform themselves from a leadership perspective 
from being the folks that know it all or have access to knowledge to the ones that have to learn it all. And they are always trying to find the one single silver silver bullet to say, you know, we need to, te to train teachers on this technology. We need to train students using this platform. And, and that only lasts for a few months because technology is always, is always changing very rapidly. So I would say that you need to think about developing this idea of, you know, designing futures, which is a, a new area of discipline where you need to see the signals of the future, develop the scenarios, and then build the tools or think about the tools that you're going to need for those scenarios. You need to think about this mindset, skill set, tool set, and you need to learn much more from people than from books or from the past. Putting all of this together, is, it basically says the things that you need to teach are how to understand the context, how to interpret the context, and then what to do about it. So the way we, we close on that is by basically saying you need to learn to understand the, this con context, you need to learn how to learn for the rest of your life, and then you need to act on, on that learning. Those would be the right ideas to design or redesign the transformation in education. Perfect, perfect, Fernando. Um, thinking about uh, education uh, in other regions, and you know, for sure you are very aware of really good initiatives out there. Are there any particular challenges that are that you, you find unique to Latin America that we should delve into? Uh, especially, you know, concerning the adoption of technology the and the integration into the global market. And my, you know, especially my concern is how can we vision a viable pathway to enhance our competitive competitiveness and readiness for the future in these aspects? You know, how can we, we actually position as a region that will be able to address even the future of work? Yeah, so I, I see Latin America has a number of uh, unique characteristics, one of which is the young population. We are typically, and we are about to lose that, that, that advantage, but we are typically a younger uh, you know, country, a younger nation, younger region. Uh, one of the things that is happening around the world, and we found this in, in, in the Nordic countries, in Finland specifically, is that they started to question the value of experience, right? Experience used to be the best thing that you could have to add value to a business. Today, experience can be a liability. And then you have some challenges that are so unprecedented that if you address those challenges with experience, you're also going to have a bias and you're going to miss on that. So what, what is happening is that they are bringing business value from people without experience to solve these unprecedented challenges. That could be a significant advantage for our region to, to understand this, this idea and to have young population, young students being able to connect to business value in a different way. The other element that I want to reflect on is this idea of, you know, the, the collaboration that is needed in, in multiple generations. I think we need to break this mold that we are 
you know, we are in school, but everybody in the same cohort comes from the same level of social economical backgrounds. They are from the same age. They sort of think alike. And then we need to think about how do we build from collaboration among the differences, collaboration yes. among different, different generations, different social backgrounds, different ideas. And, and, and that, I think, Latin America has so much diversity that if we think about designing collaboration, not, not among people that think alike or people that are from the same generation, but collaboration among these differences, that could also be a, a, a big, big uh, idea. If you look at the entertainment sector, Maria, I'm sure you, you know because Brazil is one of the top. You look at the, the gaming, you look at the social media uh, strategies, and you always see that for these big gaming companies and for these big social media companies, you always see that Latin America is strategic. Latin America is a very large market. Uh, young people are engaged with these games, with social media. They spend more hours on average than in any, on, in any other region in the, in the world. And then I think, what what if we match that with education? What is, you know, what what if we only had the same level of engagement that entertainment and gaming gaming had in Latin America, and we do that from education? Wonderful, wonderful, uh, Fernando. Now covering a very dear another topic that is very dear to me, uh, which I mentioned before, which is uh, media literacy, right? And its critical role in combating misinformation, ensuring a safe use of digital technology for all, and even considering these are rights, as you know, it was discussed in the, the roundtable that we did. Um, are there any educational institutes addressing it, as well as governments including it in the basic education system? I've seen a couple of, again, isolated initiatives, and, and it's such an important topic, and not only for the youth, like for all generations. And I know that uh, currently it's a, a big problem also for the older generation, which they're really be, really being bad damaged because they're not, they just don't know how to, how, how, they, they are used to trusting whatever they see, right? Uh, so what's what's your, your view on that? Yeah, I totally agree. I think this idea of media literacy, it should be approached as a social transformation effort. It needs to be very well managed as, as a movement because I, I think, you know, there, there is a lack of awareness of, of all of these dimensions at, and what it, what it brings when you don't have, you know, kind of a better, a better society. So, so I would say it's very close to this social transformation movement, to the civic engagement that, it, that is required. So, so I think the idea of, of uh, you know, media literacy, it has to come from understanding that the impact that it has, it, 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 it has the dimension of transforming the, the society. So when we look at that, it, it cannot be far away from any education system. So the, the idea of creating a media literacy portfolio or a media literacy curricula, I think it should be along with what I just mentioned in terms of designing futures and so on. You need to build that in communication, in capacity building, having these examples of what it what it can do 
to 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 the students and also to the parents. I think the the only way to address the challenges is to bridge students, parents, and teachers. I think this is one of these areas where everybody needs to participate. So I would not put it in a responsibility only for the education system. I think the engagement of parents. So if I was to design a media literacy, uh, let's let's call it a, a media literacy strategy for schools, I would use it in a conversation between parents, teachers, and students at the same level. Because sometimes you have the students that have the examples, but the parents are not aware. So therefore, you don't have the bullying consciousness yes. that the students have because it doesn't reach parents or teachers because it doesn't happen in the classroom, in the education setting or in in the family. So you need to bring that that digital concern back home. So I, I would I'll say this is one of the key elements. I also see a few a few examples. I know of an organization that has created a digital media uh, product that is helping education and I know companies like Google are supporting that and, and some others, but still it needs to be mainstream. I like that you brought up uh, uh, the the use of uh, the, the the media literacy and the the, the issue of bullying prevention. Uh, for the audience that is interested, we also have an episode just about uh, bullying and the impact uh, of technology and what we should do about it. Uh, the name, I think, if I'm not wrong, is the loneliness ep ep epidemic. I think uh, it's on our YouTube page with Benjamin Horta. So it's a great, great reference on bullying here in Brazil. Uh, so, uh, Fernando, we are almost running out of time, and I have a very uh, a last question to you that is uh, very important as well. And so, do you have any insights uh, regarding you know global trends, innovations in educational technology? So, what what should we expect in the coming decades? Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to you some of these uh, concepts. I was I was hired uh, to do a report last year for UNESCO Higher Education Summit in, in Barcelona. This is a meeting that happens every every 10 years or so and it was it was uh, the idea of looking at the futures of, of higher education. And we, we started by looking about the what is happening in social media that the universities are not aware of. What is it that is you could listen to your students, listen to your community, understand their needs, understand their aspirations and their concerns by connecting to that world. So one of the things is breaking these boundaries from, from universities. The second element also has to do with breaking a little bit the boundary between the formal presence, digital presence of an institution and the formal presence digital presence of the people that make this institution. So the president of a university, the, the teacher, the head of the faculty, typically they have very limited social media presence, social media impact. So what happens is more and more students are, you know, are having these behaviors in social media and less and less executives, leaders in education are part of that conversation. So we need to break that that part. That was that was one of the elements. Second is the 
the space that these uh, universities could take is not only, you know, what good of a campus you have, what good of a faculty you have, how many graduates had made it successfully in, in the business scenario, but now you need to think about, you know, how do you do this mind fusion with technology? How do you create entrepreneurs, but not only from a business perspective, but entrepreneurs in science, entrepreneurs in arts, in humanities, then what is it that you 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 can engage how do you can engage this learning you know how do you can create these active methods of of, of learning how, how do you balance the data with the emotion and how you create this connection between others so you you learn more from people so that was another dimension think about the the physical space and again you you, you know we did an exercise with Rosanne Bosch looking at, uh, at jails and prisons around the world. And we ended up with this conclusion that probably the same architect that designed the prisons and, and jails is the same that designed the universities and schools because they look so, so very similar. So, so the physical space needs to, needs to create a different environment, needs to also be a part of connecting, collaborating. And, and so you have this concept of digital, no? A little bit of physical, a little bit of digital, but all all blended. And and so two two more concepts there, uh, Maria. One is that we need to think about not a university, but a multiversity. A multiversity is a place where you have multiple certificates throughout multiple stages of your life, multiple segments, multiple generations, and multiple journeys. All of that is already existing, but it's it's kind of a, it's singled out as a university. So we, we designed um, a, a metaphor to say what the future of education should look like. And we used the, the subway of, of London, the famous tube of London, to say if you spend a week in London or you live in London, there is no way that you're going to not use the subway for for any reason. So, so this is how education should be thought of. You enter the subway in the station that is closest to where you are. You enter education at the stage that is closer to where you are. And then you move to your next destination. Sometimes in order for you to move to your next destination, you take the, you take the red line from beginning to end. But sometimes you only take two stations and, and you cross from the red line to the blue line and you go two more stations. Every station is a skill, is a mindset, is a tool set that you are uh, you know, achieving, but it's, it doesn't mean that you get to your destination. So this idea of eradicating graduation because you never end this, this learning, I think is very, very powerful. So from there, we developed um, a strategy to think about lifelong learning. What does it mean? So it has you know, many different principles. We probably don't have time to go through that. But lifelong learning is, is confused by, you know, taking a course after you graduate. Lifelong learning is a mindset. It's a curiosity. It's a way of connecting with other people that you're always learning. And it's, it's very dynamic. So it has a number of elements. So those would be the, the type of reflections that I would bring to, to discuss the future of education. You know, I'm... I'm so happy you were here with us today. Such a rich discussion, really great content. I'm, I feel very thankful. And um, if you have any 
final note, any final advice for listeners, uh, I'm leaving the last words for you. And everybody, thanks so much uh, for listening. Make sure you follow us on our YouTube uh, channel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maria. Looking forward to continue this. I Just one last me message. We need not to forget that we need to become more, more human. Let me just a quick example. There is, there is a library in, in Denmark called the Human Library, with, where instead of renting a book, you rent a person. And you may rent a person that has anorexia, and then you have to discuss how that person with anorexia is dealing with, with that. So that sort of example, I, I think we need to also create a different humanity. So thank you for, for, for the invitation. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future.